Colleagues, welcome back to the office and welcome to our podcast and presentation for today. This is Fraud in Today's Workplace, What Accountants Need to Know. My name is Steve Yass. I'll be your instructor and presenter, and I'm joined today by a very special guest, Mr. Tommy Stevens, my colleague and good friend from Woodstock, Georgia. How are you doing today, Tommy? I'm great, Steve. How about yourself? Pretty good. Pretty good. Excited awesome. to talk about fraud. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a topic that is very timely given all that's going on in the world today. And I think uh, our audience is in for uh, some startling numbers when, we, when we're able to jump into the numbers on fraud. I, I agree. I agree. Well, folks, today we've got an action-packed uh, episode for you. And today we are going to be looking at the recent findings from the Report to the Nations uh, report, which is put together, whatever I think every two years, from the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. And this report covers really, I mean, soup to nuts, start to end, all the major different aspects of fraud, the victims, the perpetrators, the types. Um, I mean, it's really a great comprehensive resource uh, for you to take a look at to uh, understand the risk and impact of fraud worldwide. And we're going to go ahead and uh, discuss some of the motivations and methods behind occupational fraud in the context of internal controls as well as looking at the fraud triangle and, and trying to understand why and where uh, some of these crimes occur, uh, as well as looking at different some of the methods for detecting fraud and hopefully identifying some of the commonalities of why fraud occurred to hopefully reduce our exposure to acceptable levels inside of our organizations. So lots of stuff to be covering today. Uh, Tommy, anything in particular you're excited for with respect to this report that you're looking forward to sharing? You know, one of the things that always strikes me, report, and I've or strikes me, Steve, and I've actually been following this report since about the year 2000, is the remarkable consistency in the numbers. Yeah, and that, it, to me, in some ways, is kind of sad because it says while there has been a little bit of progress made in preventing and detecting fraud, fraud continues, unfortunately, to run at epidemic levels. I know, and I think as people begin to understand the the pervasiveness of fraud that we're experiencing today. Hopefully, that will be some motivation uh, to do something about it and to reduce the instances of fraud that we're looking at. Yep, I agree. I agree. Well, just a couple quick things, and we're going to go ahead and dive into this report. Again, my name is Steve Yass. I am a uh, associate here with K2, writing and teaching on accounting and technology topics for the profession. Besides being an instructor and presenter for K2, I also primarily work as a software developer and technologist, uh, bringing my knowledge and experience from industry and building applications to hopefully tell you some of the better technology things to incorporate inside your business, but um, still very much a CPA and still very much interested in fraud. Uh, Tommy, how about you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, thank you. Uh, again, my name is Tommy Stevens. Uh, like Steve, I'm a CPA. I uh, reside in the metropolitan Atlanta area. I've been uh, doing this for quite some time, 37 years of experience, wow. including seven years as an internal auditor. And unfortunately, and during that time, I uh, stumbled upon quite a few frauds. I've also seen them from a public accounting perspective as well. Um, I would freely share with you my email address, Tommy at K2E.com. Please feel free to reach out to me anytime I can answer a question or do something for you. Thank you. Perfect. Perfect. 
And for those of you who are new listeners, thank you so much for finding us. Uh, again, this is CPE Today podcast produced by K2. Uh, this is our new weekly podcast coming out Tuesdays and Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific. You can watch live on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you happen to find content. You can subscribe and get it straight to your mobile device, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and more. Okay, And in fact, you can earn credits for watching or listening. Uh, if you're watching after the fact, if you're not watching live today, all you have to do is head over to cpetoday.com. Our course code is ACFE for today. You'll take a five-question quiz, and you will earn a credit for today's presentation. And if this is a new uh, experience for you, thank you so much for being here. How about you have this class or any other class if you're choosing for uh, for free on us? Just use coupon code One Free Podcast at checkout, and you can make that course free. Well, Tommy, I think without further ado, I think we just dive straight into this and and uh, uh, start to talk about some of the incredible uh, findings from this recent report on the state of affairs. Now, for those of you who have not seen this report before, this is the 12th edition. Um, I, I think it's certainly one of the most significant reports that are published on fraud, uh, and it studies fraud worldwide across the board from major industries, different parts of the world, and more. Uh, I mean, Tommy, I feel like I've been reading this report for years. And as you said, the numbers, unfortunately, have been relatively consistent. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to go back to some of these prior reports and, and see um, and just see how some of the numbers have changed and what has stayed consistent throughout the uh, throughout the uh, years. And yeah. I want you to keep in mind, um, as we're kind of walking through this, a couple of things. And really, we're talking about fraud here today. So it's about, um, you know, defrauding your organizations uh, as an employee or some sort of stakeholder. And Tommy, why don't you tell us a little bit about this fraud triangle and, and really kind of help how it helps us understand and put fraud into context? Yeah. Well, putting this into a bit of historical context, many years ago, a gentleman by the name of Donald Cressy created this thing called the fraud triangle that you're looking at on your screen right now. And basically what Cressy said at that time was fraud happens when three factors come together. The opportunity to commit the fraud, the ability to rationalize the fraud, and the motivation, the incentive to commit the fraud. Now, starting with the incentive or the motivation, what we know, of course, is that most frauds are committed because of some real or perceived financial need. I'm short on money. I need the money. I want the money. I'm going to get the money. So, yeah. so there's that. There's that. The, the that's the motivator, if you will. Secondly, from a rationalization standpoint, there typically is this element involved in the fraud to allow the perpetrator to go to sleep at night. And what I mean by that is they can rationalize it in their own mind as they didn't do anything wrong. They borrowed the money from the company instead of stole it. They were owed the bonus, then they never got their bonus. They, they worked a lot of overtime and never got the overtime, or they looked at it as a loan and they always intended to pay it back. So that's how they rationalize the fraud. Again, as I like to say, so they, they can yeah. go to sleep at night. And then there's obviously the opportunity. Uh, either by lack of internal control, by internal controls not being designed properly, by no proper segregation of duty, or whatever other means exist, they have to have the opportunity of committing the fraud. And one very important thing there is don't ignore that these opportunities are oftentimes presented based on collusion. The fact that I and Steve, for example, could be working and colluding uh, with each other to commit a fraud within our organization, or 
Maybe Steve worked for another company, uh, supplier vendor type relationship, and I could entice him into helping sure, me. Be, sure. uh, he could be my co-conspirator, if you will, uh, to commit the fraud. So again, all three of those conditions will always come together to create the fraud triangle, which of course precipitates fraud. Yep, and I, I would say there's always these three elements present. You know, I, I don't unless you're, you know, complete uh, head case. I don't think most people wake up, you know, and decide they're going to go commit fraud against their employer today. You know, it's something I think they probably grow into. You know, and these three elements, you know, I think it, are present at every level and at every stage. And I think with fraud, I mean, it, it really feels like most people, you know, it starts small and then it kind of grows, you know, like, oh, I'm just going to, I just need a couple thousand bucks to do this, that, or the other. And then all of a sudden, you know, it turns into millions. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of some of these cases that we've recently discussed, you know, the one uh, up in Illinois with that uh, city manager. Uh, yeah, Rita Dixon. Yeah, my, you know, it's like I, I'm sure she didn't wake up and steal sixty million in one day. I mean, that's over the course of a career, you know. But always, there's always some sort of prop opportunity. There's always some sort of motivation, that, and you got to find a way to 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 make peace with yourself to fall asleep. I'm sorry, I misspoke there, Steve. But her name was Rita Crundwell, and the municipality was Dixon. Yes, yeah, Dixon, uh, Illinois. Yeah, Ronald Reagan was yeah. from Dixon, Illinois. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I would also say there's probably four commonalities always present in fraud as well, just by the very nature of what the, those activities are. Um, fraud by its very nature is clandestine, so that makes it difficult to be able to detect because the people who are committing this are purposely trying to mislead and conceal their activities. Uh, fraud is always a violation of a fiduciary responsibility, um, whether you're an employee, a board member, an executive, or even an owner. And unfortunately, Tommy, I, I'm sure you rec picked up on this as well as I did in this report, how much of this is owner and executive level fraud and even owners stealing from themselves, you know, and for one reason or the other, not paying the taxes, defrauding their partners, but always it's a violation of their fiduciary responsibilities. These activities are usually for personal enrichment, um, but it could also be indirect, you know, in the sense that they're helping their kid, they're taking a kickback, you know, by giving business to, uh, you know, their brother's company or something like that. But there's always some sort of cost. Sometimes it's not direct financial dollars enacted on that organization. And then I would also say that there's a, you know, cost to that actual organization itself. It, even something as simple as a kickback scheme. It might be that they had to buy paper clips or fuel or something from them no matter what, but maybe they're not getting the best price or that company uh, isn't negotiating as hard as they possibly could to do the best job they could for their organization. And Tommy, why don't you um, share with us a little bit about the control activities that are here. And again, we just want you to keep these in mind as we're talking through this uh, and through um, uh, some of the statistics here. Because I think understanding internal controls, I mean, that's the whole point, right? I mean, why do we have internal controls? To reduce fraud. So what are these controls, Tommy? Yeah, that's a good point, Steve. So many years ago, I actually developed uh, the content that you're looking at on that slide. I have actually seen this range anywhere from three different categories of internal controls all the way up to seven different categories of internal controls. And it felt to me like we could really focus in on four. Yep. Preventive, detective, deterrent, and compensating. Now, in the best of all possible worlds, we would want to prevent any fraud from happening. So preventive controls are generally going to be the controls that we put in place, particularly over highly risky environments. 
um, maybe it's cash, maybe it's inventory, whatever we deem to have significant risk, we will put preventive controls in place, perhaps also in concert with other controls. Detective controls need to be in place to, to help us identify a situation where perhaps our preventive, preventive controls broke down or perhaps were not designed properly to begin with. We use deterrent controls as a means of, as the name says, to deter individuals com from committing fraud against our organization. And that could be something, uh, for example, like having a very um, uh, no questions asked enforcement policy that if anyone mm -hmm. is caught committing a fraud, they are immediately terminated, no questions asked, yeah. very, very strict. It's an honor violation. And then finally, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then finally, compensating controls. Look, let's be honest, particularly so in smaller businesses, it's it's challenging to have proper segregation of duties. And so we're going to put compensating controls in place to make up for weaknesses that we have in other areas. As an example, if we don't have proper segregation of duties, let's say in a small business or could be any size business for that matter, but we'll assume small, then we might ask our owners or senior managers to take on very specific fraud, anti-fraud, I should say, responsibilities, particularly over high risk items. Now, I don't want the owners and managers counting paper clips, okay? I want them dealing with the things that are worthy of their time, particularly when you think in a small business that the owners and managers are oftentimes the ones who are responsible for generating the revenue. Stated differently, every hour we ask them to invest in a compensating control effort is a yeah. very expensive hour of their time. A well-designed, well-functioning system of internal controls will include all four of these components. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I just, uh, I have to think about, you know, the fact that, you know, from the finding, putting the findings of this report into context, like, I just feel that, you know, we definitely need a balanced system of internal controls because if you put all your eggs in one basket, like detective controls, I mean, you're going to get people running circles around you. I mean, you can't say your detective controls are working when some of the findings of this report are saying it can take upwards of two years to uncover certain types of uh, fraud. So, and and to tag on to that, Steve, the single most common means of detecting a fraud is what by accident. Yes, tips. So, yeah, yeah. Well, one of the most common means of detecting fraud is is stumble into it by accident. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we have so much stuff to get through today. Let's go ahead and keep moving forward. And uh, we're going to dive into specifically um, the, a look at the victims and a look at the perpetrators and the crimes that they commit. But let's take a look at some of the key findings uh, from this report first to, to kind of set the context of our conversation. So certified fraud examiners estimate that the organizational loss of it can account to up to 5% of revenue every year. The median, so like right smack dab in the middle, 117. But the this one blew me away, Tommy. Average loss of 1.7 million dollars uh, from their report. That just seems, and I know they're looking at big business and small business, but I mean, this is like crypto ransom style money. I mean, this is just incredible with the 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 dollar average dollar lost here. One comment I would make there is recognize that those median losses, five percent of revenue, for example. Adding insult to injury, you've already paid for the cost of goods sold. Yeah. So when we say that you're losing 5% of revenue, let's say it's a small business and 5% of revenue was half a million dollars. That's half million dollars that would have otherwise gone directly to the bottom line mm -hmm. and would have otherwise gone directly <clears throat> to the owner or owners of that business. 
So if you are having a challenge trying to convince owners that internal controls and anti-fraud efforts are important, there's your ammunition. That gives you the tool to say, hey, look, if you will invest $20,000, $30,000, $50,000 in internal controls, you're looking at a benefit of essentially increasing realized revenues by 5%, which goes straight to the bottom line. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you might have to spend a little money to create an anti-fraud program, but I mean, not only is that the right thing to do, and besides just the dollar value, I'll point out in a lot of these instances, it's usually other risks as well. Regulatory issues, you know, fines, fees, bad press. I mean, nobody likes to, you know, have their name associated with any type of fraud in any business. So I, I think it, it totally makes sense here. Um, typical fraud case uh, causes a loss of eight grand per month and can take uh, on average about 12 months before detection. And I mean, this, this is the average. It certainly can go up from there. Uh, tips accounted for 42% of fraud. You know, uh, from from my perspective, that's just an incredible number that, uh, again, these detective controls that we've created, you know, I feel that, uh, you know, we can create these really kind of fancy control methods. But, uh, you know, it's it, it's incredible just how much just occurs by accident that we find out of. And if I could chime in on that, where you've got employees contribute more than 50 percent of all mm -hmm. tips there, again, is one of the most effective deterrent controls. <clears throat> because employees eventually become aware of the fraud in most cases. Um, it, when, when you think about it, it's somewhat of a sad commentary that it, back in traditional office environments, sure. which we're not in uh, anymore, but in traditional office environments, we typically spend more time with our coworkers than we do with our families, more waking hours with our coworkers than we do with our families. Sure. And that means that we become very close to our coworkers. They become amongst our best friends. Sooner or later, in many cases, <clears throat> the person committing the fraud will confide in their best friend, their coworker, that they've been sticking their hand in the cookie jar, so to speak. Well, fast forward a little bit. Let's suppose that I'm the best friend and now I get uh, my annual performance review and my boss says, hey, you did a great job last year. We appreciate all of your effort. But, you know, financially, we didn't have a great year and therefore I can't give you the bonus and I can't give you the raise that you deserve. It's not going to take me very long to realize that my supposed best friend stole that money from me. That was my raise. That was my bonus that, that I took. Yeah. And if you give me an opportunity to turn in that person, yeah. I'm, yeah, I won't do it immediately. Human nature is we won't do it immediately. But over time, it will fester and eventually we will turn the person in. Sure. Sure. I, I think most people want to do the right thing, you know. Um, I just think they, they do, you know, and if you give them, I think the takeaway, and we'll talk about tip lines a little bit later, but I think if you give people an opportunity to be able to do the right thing and to report it, especially if you can provide it and at least give them the option to be anonymous, I think they will. You know, I think most yeah. people want to do the right thing. Uh, corruption. Um, this has been year over year uh, from these reports continues to be the most common fraud scheme. And uh, Tommy, from my perspective, you know, certain types of fraud occur at certain levels of management. You know, it feels that like, you know, if I'm just a standard stock clerk, I'm going to steal inventory. You know, if I'm a shop clerk, I might be stealing cash, you know, but it feels like corruption is probably more like a little bit up the food chain here inside the business. 
Yeah, corruption is very, very common with mid-level managers. Yeah. Let's say we've got a purchasing manager, and the purchasing manager wants a manager uh, will will accept a kickback from a vendor in order to buy at, at a higher price than than what would otherwise be necessary. That that would be a, a very common, unfortunately, a very common type of corruption fraud. Um, again, the the average rank and file hourly employee, they're gonna they're gonna steal. Uh, you get to mid-level management, most common frauds there are corruption sure. frauds. And then as you get up to senior level managers, it's financial statement frauds. Sure. Yeah, because they get they paid get off profit, profit, right? You know, so they want to yep. overstate that and make it as look as profitable as they can. Isn't that right, Kenneth Lay? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so organizations with the fewest employees have the highest median loss of 150000 You know, I, I, I will say my takeaway from that is, unfortunately, you know, big businesses like, let's say, an Apple, it's a $3 trillion market cap. I mean, they can, you know, I don't think 150 k would even be material for them, um, you know, but the small mom and pop shops, I mean, that dollar loss, I mean, that that's multiple people's salary. I mean, that's the livelihood of sometimes of these businesses. And it really speaks to the lack of internal controls in 100%. small businesses, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially small business, they always take the off shucks where we're tiny who'd want to potentially steal or data breach us. And the reality is you're just as risk at much risk as any other business these days. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Owners and executives commit 23% of fraud <laughs> because the most lost. Does that that doesn't strike me as unusual? What about for you? Well, you think about it, the the lower level employee isn't in a position in most cases yeah. to be able to exact a significant financial loss. You start moving up the food chain and the organizational structure, the mid-level managers and the and the C-level suite, they've got authority, they've got power, they've got uh, influence. They're they're in the they are the ones who are in a position to commit the most expensive frauds. You know, I'm going to add one more part to this, and I think you'll agree with it too. They also have the means to be able to conceal their frauds too. You know, your average employee maybe can't do an override in the GL, you know, or post fraudulent journal entries, but you know what? The CFO certainly could. So, yeah. Uh, 85% of fraudsters displayed behavioral red flags before getting caught. And I think this kind of goes back to what you were saying with the, um, you know, confiding in your coworkers about what you're doing, you know. Um, we've got a list here a little bit later on of some of these behavioral red flags, but you know, sometimes I feel like, you know, we tend to lie to ourselves like we're not seeing something occur because we don't want to have to deal with it or, you know, it, it's um, it's easier to, I guess, when this does happen to, you know, kind of claim ignorance and be blindsided by it. But I feel like there's always a flag like, you know, if you really are honest with yourself, you're like, oh, yeah, I guess I could see Bob doing that or Susan doing that. How is it that the $15 an hour clerk is driving around in a $100,000 car? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something doesn't add up there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, this one really blew me away, but this is consistent throughout the years. It's just how few of these fraud cases actually result in the fraudsters, I mean, even getting arrested, let alone actually retribution and uh, you know reparations back to, to their companies. But only 66% of fraud cases were that were referred to law enforcement resulted in, in a conviction. So two thirds of these people are, are getting s some sort of, um, you know, um, penalty for their crime, but a third, I mean, nothing. Well, and, and I agree what I, with you, Steve, I would love to see that number at a hundred percent, but frankly, that's actually an improvement yes. over let's say 10 or 15 years ago, perhaps even longer when oftentimes the victim would choose not to prosecute. 
Yeah. We have seen an increase in the rate of prosecution uh, over the past two decades. But even today, what oftentimes will happen is, let's suppose I stole $100,000 from you. What you really want is the money. You're not necessarily as interested in me going to jail. So if I can come up with $100,000, then oftentimes you will go to the DA or whoever the prosecutor is and say, hey, I, I'm not, I'm not filing Copa, charges. Copa. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm looking at the, the actual raw data here from the report. Uh, 61% of perpetrators are terminated by their employers. Uh, 58% of cases were referred to law enforcement. 66 resulted in a conviction. But 50% of organizations that didn't refer cases to law enforcement cited internal discipline as the reason. So uh, I, I bet the numbers are astronomical, but there's no benefit to a business of disclosing fraud if they don't have to. Exactly. And I would assume most of this is going to come from public businesses where you're going to be subject to things like Sarbanes-Oxley that have to disclose this. But, you know, if you're a private private business, I mean, what, what benefit could possibly come from telling the world about well, what happened to you? And I'll share with you at a personal level. Several years ago, I had a client who became a victim of about a $225,000 credit card fraud in their business. It wasn't a personal card. It was a business card. And when they went to the district attorney, the DA said, sorry, I'm too busy. I'm not going to prosecute this. It's a white collar yep. case where we don't care about it. Yep. Now, my client did did file civil suit as opposed to criminal charges, and they did recover on the civil side. But uh, the DA refused to prosecute. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they want to go after murderers and gang members. Yeah. And I mean, that's the stuff that gets them in the paper. And, you know, that's what gets they're, you reelected. They're resource constrained just like absolutely. everybody else. You know, but on the civil side of this, I mean, the part that really annoys me with this is that, I mean, you're going to incur significant legal fees if you choose to go after somebody. So somebody, you know, defrauds you of 200000 bucks, you might have to spend another fifty, sixty, or even more $1,000 to, you know, hire a lawyer and go after this person. And yeah. that's not a sure thing that you'll be able to either, I mean, it doesn't matter what happened, it's about what you can prove. And it could ultimately end up in nothing. And you will have lost the money plus incurred all those legal fees that went along with it. Yeah, I mean, after all, why did they steal? They steal because they they needed the money. Yeah. And and if they needed the money, even if you get a even if you get a judgment in your favor, what are you going to collect on? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Uh, now, this is a breakdown. I loved, and unfortunately, I could not find an easy way of being able to display this in uh, in our presentation here today. <clears throat> but I loved they had a great breakdown showing that uh, really fraud falls in three major categories, asset misappropriation, corruption, and then financial statement fraud. And, you know, these three levels uh, of these Venn diagrams really kind of, I, I think, are great because asset misappropriation is the largest quantity by because that's mostly employees. You have a couple of mid-managers, that's a bigger, that's going to be your corruption. And the, the financial statement fraud is really tiny because, I mean, that's just your executives and your owners here. Uh, but there's a there's a diagram, uh, like, a, like a hierarchy on the report itself, kind of showing the interrelation of these different uh, crimes. It's figure three, if, for those of you uh, who maybe have downloaded the report and looked, but I really loved seeing, like, within corruption, like, conflict of interest, bribery, gratuities, economic extortion, and just kind of seeing how all these things are interrelated with each other. And, you know, what this diagram kind of shows us is that it's never just one thing. It's always, like, a combination of multiple different crimes coming together. So, but I would say your biggest ones are going to be, you know, asset misappropriation. I, I, well, I shouldn't say, I feel like 
whatever level you are in the organization, whatever you have access to is typically what you're going to steal. Yeah, and asset misappropriation, as you said, Steve, it is definitely the most common fraud, although it is the least expensive fraud yes. on average. Financial statement frauds are the least common, but they are the most expensive. Yep, yep. Now, this is kind of a cool chart and uh, graph here that kind of shows within asset misappropriation where the hot buttons are. And so what we see in one category is frequency of loss and then also dollar value of loss here. And if we look at the leading quadrant in the upper right-hand corner, it's billing fraud. You know, And that consistently, I think, uh, probably pops up as being the most common. But you know what always strikes me, Tommy, is kind of interesting is I feel like a lot of businesses put a lot of emphasis on the AR side of their business, like people stealing you know, receipts and cash, but consistently it's billing, you know, that billing scheme fraud, billing scheme frauds and uh, check tampering frauds, both of which are accounts payable frauds are, are the most uh, expensive of the, let's call them the non-financial state. I'm sorry, the, the non-financial state, the uh, non-corruption frauds. And, and again, those are on the accounts payable side of the ledger. And just as you were saying, Steve, so many people are focusing on the accounts receivable side, looking at inbound cash and they're failing to consider that, yes, people can steal through accounts payable also. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge risk. As we can see, the median losses there in both cases approximate $100,000. Yep. It, I, I, for myself, when I worked in public accounting, every time, thankfully, I didn't have too many occurrences of fraud, but every one of them, they were always billing frauds. You know, they created fake companies and were paying, paying fake invoices to these organizations. So. so you guys are th- you're going to think I live in a great neighborhood. I actually had someone who lives 11 houses down the street from me steal 1.6 million dollars from a company in Atlanta using a billing scheme fraud, the fake vendor, the fake invoice fraud. She and her husband conspired together to commit that fraud. She was the CFO at the company. Went on for 16 months. Uh, I'm sorry, 18 months and 1.6 million dollars vanished as a result of that fraud. I, I just don't understand what like do they think they're not going to get caught? I don't know. They had a lot of really nice landscaping put in sure. during that 16 months. <laughs> sure, sure. I just, I can't tell you, I can't understand why people will do this because I do understand why people will do this. But the part of me, I mean, 1.6 million is a lot of money. There's no question about it. But that's not enough money for me to throw away my life and risk going to jail and losing freedom and let alone being a pariah on society. I, I just, yeah, I just, I just don't get it. You know, it just doesn't. None of these dollar figures seem large enough to literally destroy your life over it. And now you mentioned, I think you said sixteen or eighteen months here. Uh, what I thought was one of the really key uh, findings of this report was looking at the duration of the fraud and the median loss. And pretty consistently, the longer the fraud goes on, the dollar value of the loss goes up. Uh, as you, as we would all expect. Absolutely, got to pay for this fraud somehow. You know. Uh, but if we look at this, and let's go ahead and zero in just on this uh, on this graphic here. You know, a lot of these simple frauds, you know, the small level stuff, less than six months, that represent about a third. You know, the dollar value is quite low at, well, relatively low at 47. But only, you know, for stuff that goes on five years or longer, that's only 6% of these things. But the dollar value goes up to 800 grand. And that just makes sense, you know, because... I don't know. To me, it feels like once you start, you don't turn off that tap. That water keeps flowing. Mm-hmm. Agree. So if we also look at this, and this is another really kind of cool report uh, chart, 
the duration of the loss by fraud type. Okay, and so some of these frauds, if we look, you know, last 12 months, 18 months, um, you know, and, and some are longer than this. But, you know, what kind of struck me from this part of the report, Tommy, was the stuff that was, let's call it relatively simple, like cash on hand or even payroll for that matter, uh, coming down here like register. I thought it was interesting that they're all 12 months, you know, or shorter periods of time compared to like stuff that was more um more difficult, let's say, to do, you know, that, that were longer, like a billing fraud, you know, that was like 18 months. And I don't know about you, but that kind of really speaks to the level of employee, I guess, that perpetrates these different types of frauds. Yeah. Generally speaking, these these theft frauds can be committed by someone without a tremendous educational background, without a tremendous accounting background. I mean, we're talking, you know, the accounts payable specialist inside an organization could commit these frauds. And maybe that person uh, is going to sound crazy, but but they, they're they not strategic thinkers like the person committing the financial statement fraud uh, coming out of the C-suite would be. So that probably means that they're, they're, they're getting a little bit sloppy sure. uh, and allowing themselves to be caught in a much sooner time. Or, for example, if it's a payroll fraud, oftentimes payroll frauds are being committed these days by someone writing a check payable to the Internal Revenue Service, coding it to payroll tax expense when they're actually paying their own personal income sure. taxes with that check. And so then whoever's preparing the 941s, the W3s, et cetera, et cetera, when they start to try to reconcile all of those numbers together, all of a sudden the numbers don't add up because of the additional fraud payments that are that were coded yeah. to payroll tax expense. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, I, I mean, there's just certain these annual reports that you're just going to inevitably catch some of these things when you do the reconciliation. And, you know, the other part that got to me too, and granted only a fraction of the, of the frauds investigated come from public companies that have that are subject to audit, but it feels like the lower level stuff is stuff that auditors should catch, you know, when they're doing an annual audit of a company or like an internal audit or a review or something like that. Um, but like the higher level stuff, you know, like the billing fraud, that might not be something you could catch. But that also speaks to usually somebody in the company who has the ability to conceal that fraud as well. Which makes it all the more important to make the anonymous tip reporting mechanisms available to all team members. 100 uh, percent. That fraud goes on for 18 months, 24 months, some extended period of time. Yep. Somebody else in the company knows about it. Absolutely. And they need the opportunity to report it. Usually what I say is, I mean. It's either ignorance, like willful ignorance, like I just don't want to know, or you're, you know, just not paying attention, you know, stupid. I don't know. I'm hesitant to use that term, but like some of these are just so blatant. And I I find also with the frauds that I've looked at, especially for something that's really a long term, that's been going on for a long period, they get bold, you know, and they start becoming more, more brash with their actions. And it's like, how could you not notice that? You know, are you just not paying attention or you do not care? So. Now, in terms of how they conceal fraud, I thought this was pretty interesting uh, because it really speaks to um, the clandestine nature of how fraud occurs. You know, that they're either creating fraudulent documents. I'm always reminded of Z-Best carpet cleaning. And and the guy said he was a wizard with a Xerox machine. He could make anything um, that he, you know, he needed. Or uh, now, you know, I'm assuming a lot of this is going to be, you know, through technical means, either through manipulating mm-hmm. the accounting system or, um, you know, even creating fraudulent PDFs for that matter is a pretty good sure. way. But, you know, these people, it's like, I mean, just take your time and, and learn the skill rather than just like learn how to create a fake document. I mean, put your effort in something that's going to be legal, I guess. 
Now, one thing I thought was pretty interesting here, 12% didn't even bother to try to conceal the fraud. Did that number strike you? I'm not sure if you saw that number pop up. Yeah, I, I did see that number, and it, it does strike me. Um, I would assume that those are probably senior-level managers, probably in very small businesses where perhaps they might even be the owner of the business. So so if if they are the sole party responsible for the organization, why should they care about trying sure. to conceal it? Sure. And I'll give you a, a case study and a true real-world example of this. Please. So I know I know of a person uh, who's actually the father of one of my daughter's best friends years ago. Um, he called me one day. I was not his CPA, but he called me and said, hey, I'd like to talk to you. Can you come to my office? And I thought, great, chance to pick up a client. So I go out and visit with him. I walk in his office. He closes the door behind me. Now, he owned the organization entirely, closed the door behind me, and proceeded to lay out the fraud that he had been committing. Uh, this was back around 2008 timeframe mm, when the economy okay. was starting to go off the rails. And he owned a trucking company. And he began to notice that his volume of freight shipments was declining. Now, his volume declines, obviously, so does revenue. And he had an asset-based asset line of credit, which allowed him to draw 75% of total current assets down on the line of credit. Well, the problem is when revenue is declining, what else is declining? Accounts receivable. Absolutely. So he was getting he was getting capital calls from the bank every month because he had less accounts receivable on which to base his line of credit. And he told his bookkeeper, hey, when, from now on, whenever you receive a payment, go ahead and deposit the check in the bank but make a copy of the check, stick the copy of the check in your filing cabinet, and 30 days later, go in and post it to our accounting software. Now, the bookkeeper was not a trained bookkeeper. This person did not have accounting skills. So I have to assume she didn't really understand what was going sure. on. But what was going on, of course, was he was essentially committing a fraud against the bank mm -hmm. by artificially keeping accounts receivable inflated. Sure. And in that case, he really did nothing to, to attempt to conceal the fraud. Um, ultimately, um, he, he was so upside down, the economy kept tanking that when he had asked me to come in and, and figure out just how bad it was, two weeks later, I went back out and visited with him and said, hey, look, you're gonna, you need to make two phone calls. Number one, you need to call a bankruptcy attorney because I don't see any way you can bring your business back. And number two, you need to call a criminal defense attorney because when the bank finds out what you did, they're going to prosecute. What saved him in that case was, it was about a $750,000 loss the bank took on those loans or the, the line of credit. This was when all of the banks were failing. Sure. That particular bank drew a line in the sand and said that they were not going to look at anything under a million dollars. And because of that, even though he had to file corporate bankruptcy, even though he had to file personal bankruptcy, he did not sure. get prosecuted at a criminal level. Sure. Sure. And I, but, that, but again, you know, yeah. the point there is he, he was the owner. There was nobody there to question him. And so that's why there was no, no attempt to conceal the, the fraudulent action. I totally get it. And, you know, I'm willing to bet, and I'm really hoping I'm wrong here, but in the aftermath of all the PPP money that was spread out over the last couple of years, I bet we're going to see some of that pop up here now that people are going no for doubt. forgiveness. No doubt. Well, folks, let's go ahead and have a review question. Okay, according to the report to the nations, what category of occupational fraud has the highest frequency of occurrence as well as the highest dollar loss? Is it non-cash? No, it is not. Is it check and payment tampering? No, it is not as well. 
nor is it skimming, although those are all significant. Consistently, Tommy, it's been billing, right? People just on the AP side of this, just stealing money, paying checks to fake companies. All right, let's go into our next section here, which is detecting occupational fraud. Uh, And really, tips, internal audit, external audits, law enforcement contacting you and more. You know, how are we actually figuring out when these frauds occur? And frankly, I mean, the data has been consistent over the years, which just blows me away far and beyond. I mean, like triple the next level up from here is tips at almost half at 42%. You know, but I think about how much like an external audit costs, and it only represents four percent of the way that we uncover occupational fraud. Uh, and if we add up, let's say, the stuff that happens by accident, like tips, or uh, you figure it out by accident, or law enforcement—I mean, it is like half of fraud just comes in through no means of the company trying to detect it themselves. I would add very quickly there, Steve, as far as internal audit is concerned. Again, I spent a good portion of my mm-hmm. career as an internal auditor. I can honestly tell you that my department never detected a single fraud scheme. We confirmed a lot of fraud schemes coming in through the tip reporting line, but we never detected a single fraud in five plus years uh, of working on the internal audit team. So even though you will see, I, frankly, what I'm getting to there is I believe that that 16% number is actually overstated. I could see it's that. It's the internal audit yeah. group over or, or claiming credit for detecting a fraud, but the, the the actual motive for doing the investigation came through an anonymous tip. Yep, yep, I agree. <clears throat> I agree. And again, I, I had to come back to these detective controls that we put in place. We can't say that they're really working if 50% is just coming in through happenstance. Right. Now, for these frauds, I don't think there's any shocker here. Employees are your eyes and ears, and more and more... Uh, and more of it's going to come from your internal staff than I think anywhere else. Um, you know, I would think like, you know, your customers or your competitors or even vendors for that matter, they don't have that kind of transparency into operations, but employees are always your eyes and ears. And again, I would also suggest that the 16% of anonymous is probably mostly employee. I could see that too. That, that employee number is probably 65 to 70% as opposed to 55%. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for those of you who are watching that don't have a like the ability to be have fraud reported in your company, I mean the data is super clear that having and implementing a, a, a fraud tip line, whether it be through physically like a like a voicemail message or like a text or even an email address, where people have the ability to securely uh, report when they see certain things happen, it consistently has shown that this not only helps reduce fraud overall, but then also helps contain the damage when fraud does occur. Uh, I thought this was a really interesting number here, that fraud losses were twice as high for organizations that didn't have a tip line. I mean, how much could a tip line cost, Tommy? You know, um, I was <clears throat> actually the, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, <clears throat> if memory serves me correctly, act, uh, has that as a service. And I want to say it's around 40 to 45 bucks a month for a small business. Sure, sure, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, you could just set it up as a voicemail inbox, too. You know, mm-hmm. just something something within your existing phone system if uh, if you needed to. Uh, but no shocker here. Average loss for an organization with a tip line, 100K. But if you didn't have a tip line, that same fraud was 200,000. And yeah, there's a 58% greater likelihood of reporting a fraud if you have fraud training. So in addition to the tip line, but also training your staff to be able to recognize the the indicators of when fraud occurs, I think that just makes perfect sense. Um, 
I know, I know we're both trainers. We obviously feel that you should have as much training as you possibly can, but, um, it's amazing, especially let's say for non-financial staff, just like people in retail or hospitality that they, I could totally see that we legitimately would not be able to recognize some of the common, uh, telltale signs of what fraud looks like. Well, and I would create a parallel there, Steve, to uh, security training. You and I talk about Absolutely. cybersecurity training all the time. And one of the one of the reasons cybersecurity training should be done is to build that culture of cybersecurity within an organization. Likewise, one of the reasons we should be engaging in fraud tip training or fr- fraud training or anti-fraud training, probably better said, is to build that anti-fraud culture that, hey, the fraud is not acceptable in this organization, and it, this is why each and every team member has a, a stake in reducing the instances of fraud that may be occurring. Could not agree more. And I think they go hand in hand. They're very complimentary type of yes, training as well. Absolutely. Let's have another review question on this. I know sometimes these review questions come quick, but got to do them. Uh, according to the report, which of the following accounts for the most fraud detections? We've gone over it pretty in depth. Uh, is it IT controls? Those are super helpful and they're great eyes and ears, but they're not the primary one, nor are external audits, although they are always expensive. Surveillance and monitoring can certainly provide some insight and maybe confirm things for you, but that's not the answer either. As always, it's tips, you know, and just making available a mechanism for people to be able to report this can certainly improve uh, your ability to be able to find out about these frauds and then do something about them. Uh, let's take a moment and look at some of the victim companies of these fraud crimes. And no shocker here, I mean, it, it's every type of business you can think of and, and nonprofits and governments as well. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting. It's, it seemed to be relatively about the same uh, in terms of dollar loss across these different entities. Um, private companies, those account for about f- almost 50% of, um, of the frequency though. And to me, Tommy, that really kind of rings true to the fact that most private companies, if you're not, if you don't have to implement internal controls or you're not required to, they're expensive, you know, it, that just, at least that's what I'm thinking, why it's so much higher. Would agree with that. And also I would say that virtually all small businesses are private companies. We don't have publicly held small businesses. So knowing that small businesses are the most common victim, then that would uh, say that they're falling into the private company bucket, driving those numbers up higher. Yep, yep. And uh, one other one I'll point out here, government represents about 18% of frequency and about 138,000 bucks. I don't know if you read that section in there where it broke it down, the difference between federal, state, county, and local. But some of the local numbers, I was like, man, that's really high, much more higher than I was expecting. And I mean, frankly, all the government fraud was like high, you know, I was yeah. like, but um, I think uh, especially your, the smaller you are, the more likely it is than not that you have poor internal controls inside your organization. Particularly lack of segregation of duties, which contribute so much to fraud. Absolutely here. Absolutely. Now, this other slide here, this goes large employer versus small employers. And 22% of uh, the frauds reported were from organizations with less than 100 employees. And they had about 150,000 loss. And about 25% of this was for organizations with 10,000 plus employees. And it was about the same. You know, this uh, 
large employer versus small employer, the dollar loss and the frequency were about the same. I thought that was a pretty interesting number. And I would tell you that that number, Steve, is actually even more uh, impactful on the business with less than 100 employees because the, the small business with less than 100 employees might be grossing, let's say, $5 million or $10 million a year. That business with 10,000 or more employees, they're grossing $5 billion or $10 billion mm -hmm. a year, right? So yeah. $150,000 loss on a business that's grossing $5 million on a proportional basis is significantly more than $138,000 loss for a business that's grossing, say, $5 billion. So oh, not absolutely. Only, not only are small businesses impacted disproportionately on an absolute level, but also on a relative level. Yep. Yeah. And that 10,000 person company doesn't bat an eye if they lose 138 yeah. grand, you know, but yeah. that could be bankruptcy money, you know, for a small ice cream shop or, mm -hmm. you know, retail shop in town or something else like that. And here's a breakdown between these different industries. And if I remember correctly from the report, the most impacted industry in terms of median loss was our real estate companies with almost uh, uh, over $400,000 on average cases here. Uh, but no real shocker here in terms of, uh, you know, the the dollar median loss by industry. You know, I feel like arts and entertainment, that loss is low because generally there's less money. Financial crimes tend to be more expensive. Um, I didn't really see anything out of here out of the different industries that stood out as like, oh, I didn't think it would be that high. Actually, real estate might have been a little high. I'm trying to figure out what that could be if that's at like a agent broker office or if that's, you know, REITs or something. I'm not sure. I think, Steve, you would find that many of those real estate frauds are when somebody begins to have a little bit of insider knowledge that maybe there's a new development about to go in. Oh, that's good. Yeah. They run out and they, they buy up all of the land based yeah. on knowledge, insider knowledge that they really shouldn't have. Yep. Yep. I get it. I get it. And if we look at different types of fraud schemes by organization side, I didn't really find this uh, to be that uh, groundbreaking either. It was like, okay, that kind of makes sense here. And what we have is two different numbers. Uh, the lighter blue is for our 100 plus employee organizations and our darker blue is for our smaller organizations. Totally made sense to me that bigger organizations are going to have more corruption. You know, if you're a small business, I mean, what are you going to give your, yourself a kickback? You own the business. Uh, but, you know, if you're a purchasing manager for a Fortune 500 company, I mean, you could be buying tens of millions, billions of dollars in raw materials potentially or, you know, preferential vendor schemes, as an example. There was a large uh, home improvement company whose primary color is orange, and I'll leave it at that, sure. a few years ago who had a significant corruption fraud down in South America where the purchasing managers were paying artificially inflated prices for products, as I understand it, in return for kickbacks. Uh, so you're absolutely right, Steve. That type of fraud really is much more prevalent in larger businesses than it is small. The other takeaway there is simply recognize, as I'm sure we all do, that the types of frauds will vary. Uh, for example, the billing scheme fraud. Well, one of the ways that a billing scheme fraud comes about is because of lack of proper segregation of duties inside the accounts payables process. Uh, in larger organizations, we have enough warm breathing bodies to get segregation of duties. Yes. In smaller businesses, we don't have three or more qualified incompetent people. And it does take three or more qualified incompetent people to have proper segregation of duties. So I think that also would show you why in some cases we have um, different uh, um, different percentages, significantly different percentages of different types of frauds. Absolutely. And this is probably as good of 
the time as any. Just to refresh folks on segregation of duties, there are multiple different functions that whenever possible, if you can divide them into either separate people, separate groups, that if you can't, uh, that if you can put these into separate people, uh, absent of collusion, I mean, it should be that, you know, fraud can't occur. Uh, because it would require, again, multiple people to be able to to collude to occur. Uh, but, you know, the person who authorizes something, you know, authorizes that transaction, who approves it, should be a different person than the person who's recording it, preparing source documents or uh, putting it into the financial system, which should be a different person than somebody who has custody over it, whether directly or indirectly, receiving checks. As an example, you know, somebody pays a bill and there's uh, a remittance and then a payment there. They should ideally, one goes to one person, the other one goes to the other. I would say out of all of these, though, if if you can't separate these three, ideally you should. But the one function I just feel very strongly about that should always be separate is the reconciliation and audit function. You can't audit your own work. So, um, you know, you can't QAQC, quality control your own work. You can't audit your own work. You have to have that done by a different person. And I feel in most small businesses, at the very minimum, if you don't have a financial person inside your company, you should consider hiring a firm even if it's just once a quarter, ideally more frequently than that, just to come in and do the reconciliation on your checking and, and financial accounts. Uh, that limited th- thing, I feel it can add a ton of value to a company. And I would <clears throat> add, and this begins to get outside the scope of what we're talking about today, Steve, but the opportunity for automation Absolutely. to take the place of one or more of those specific uh, functions, like authorization, if we could use... Uh, Microsoft uh, Power Automate, for example, and build in automation rules with approved various levels of approvals so that everything is completely automated. Then we could take that warm, breathing, living body that was otherwise working on authorization and have them deal with some other element of internal control. Yep. Automation can go a long way toward enhancing internal control. I totally agree with you there. And I, I... Security, I mean, automation and security go hand in hand. I mean, if you remove people from that possibility, I mean, systems aren't going to steal from you. It's always people at the end of the day. And password resets, collecting credit card information, payment information, those should always be done system person to system rather than person to person. Because if it's going straight into a system, there's never an opportunity for somebody to collect that information, especially if that data is encrypted. Now, Tom, we're getting towards the end of our time here together. And I think before we go, though, we do need to spend a minute and just talk about some of the perpetrators and who's actually committing these um, and try to get an understanding of who they are to the business. Um, So looking at this here, this chart totally makes sense to me. This is a level of perpetrators authority to an organization. And, uh, you know, so if we look at this. The dollar value lost by employees is fifty grand and represents thirty-seven percent of uh, incidents here. Uh, owners, though, only represent about twenty percent, twenty-three percent to be precise, but three hundred and thirty-seven thousand. That makes sense. There's more employees than there are owners, but the owner has a greater authority and, and can conceal their fraud as well. It also speaks to the different types of frauds that each of those groups are committing. The average rank-and-file employee is not in a position to commit financial statement fraud. Yes. The owner is. Yes. And so since we know that financial statement frauds are more expensive than stealing cookies out of the cookie jar fraud, yeah. again, you have to look at, at what each of these classes of team members can do. Yep. Yeah, I will. And, and frankly, I don't think an 
most employees would even care about the financial statement. You know, I'm trying to think of like a retail shop clerk at a major big box retailer. I mean, they, I'm not saying they couldn't, but I'm just saying I doubt that they even care, you know, about what the financial statement says. Right. Now, if we look at this in terms of the tenure of that employee to detect fraud, your standard employee, you can detect it within eight months. Managers longer, about a year and a half. And then our owner executive, about 18 months. Uh, and, to me, and to me, we already kind of talked about this in the sense that employees, this stuff should be caught uh, in the external audit or internal audit or review functions. But, you know, the further you go up in the chain, the more ability you have to be able to conceal it. And that, too, is reflective of it, in my opinion, anyway, the type of work that they're doing. Uh, again, what the, the average rank and file employee, and I think you've got a slide coming up on this, Steve, talks about the tenure, how long have they been in the organization. Uh, isn't it ironic that we watch that person very closely who's only been on the job with us for less than a year? Yeah. And I'm not going to say that a $50,000 fraud, the median loss there is not significant. It certainly is. But the senior people in the organization who know where all of the internal control weaknesses are and who know where all of the skeletons are buried, yes. we don't watch them very closely. No. And it should become no surprise then that they're stealing uh, median or we have median losses there of $250,000. Yep. Yep. And, and I will also say, too, I think when somebody you've worked with somebody for a decade, your 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 barriers are non-existent at that point. You know, you, they're friends, you know, you go to the kids dance recital, you know, you go over for birthday barbecues, 4th of July. I mean, you're, you're not as vigilant as you're going to be when either you don't like the person or they're brand new to the company. So uh, that's just life in general. You got to trust somebody. Your old friends are the ones you're going to trust the most. Sure. Now, we got a few more things here that I think are pretty interesting, and, and um, this is one of them I definitely wanted to cover here. Where the greatest risk is to the business and this looks at the frequency as well as dollar lost here by these different uh, departments or divisions of the company. And I thought it was interesting. Pretty much everything is all cloistered around together here at the lower left. But it's not until we really get up to the top here uh, that we see, you know, the real, real danger. You know, it's the board of directors and that upper management. That that totally makes sense to me, you know. Financial statement fraud. 100%. Yeah, 100%. You know, and it could be, for example, anything from uh, – um, you know, stock schemes over reporting. I mean, the stuff we saw with Enron as an example there. I mean, those are all really good uh, uh, examples of uh, companies. I mean, there's so many examples. And those are the ones we're really going to see in the news as well. Now, there are a couple of red flags here that I think we should mention, and then we're coming towards our end here. But uh, let's maybe finish with this with respect to some of the big red flags to consider and all of these, again, kind of make sense to me. And the big one here would be that living beyond your means. You know, I, I, it really speaks to be plugged into your staff, what's going on in their lives. You know, if you start seeing Steve Stropin a Bentley and he's a, a janitor, not saying a janitor couldn't have a Bentley, but, you know, if the other janitors don't, you know, that's usually something that maybe you might want to ask. Or, you know, again, like a retail shop clerk who's 22 years old, you know, working at Best Buy, I don't think they could probably, you know, afford a beach house in Miami as an example. Uh, l unusual close association with a vendor or customer, you know, that kind of collusion, uh, control issues, unwillingness to share duties. How many stories have you heard about? It was the model employee. They never took a day off. You know, they were there seven days a week. First one there, the last one to leave. I know there's so many examples of people just, you know, they are that model employee because they're concealing it. They have to be. 
that's the Rita Cronwell in Dixon, yes. Illinois issue. Yeah. I mean, she stole what sixty million dollars, I believe it was, from from the uh, municipality, and she she mandated that she had control over everything. Yep, yep, I agree. And I'll also point out just understanding. I think culture is so very, very, very important. Uh, I'm not saying someone who just got divorced or having family issues is going to commit a fraud, but you know you have to understand that there are motivating factors in people's life that can certainly cause that to occur. And, you know, if you create a culture where you can talk and be open and, and, you know, maybe you'll be able to help this person, but, uh, and be able to talk through these issues with these people, but at least you're being present and understanding that that person does present a higher risk to the company. Although 99.99% of those folks will never do something like that. All right. One final review question that we're going to go ahead and wrap up and, and, Okay, so which of the following statements is generally true about collusion and fraud? Okay, collusion is not material factor when considering fraud. No way. Okay, uh, frauds with two perpetrators are more costly than fraud with three perpetrators. I don't think that's correct either. Uh, fraud with one perpetrator is more costly than fraud with three. That doesn't seem right. Tommy, what do you think it is? Well, since you eliminated all of the yes. others, I'm going to go with frauds involving collusion are generally more costly than single perp frauds, as we discussed a few minutes ago. Yep. And I would say the more people you got involved, the the higher the risk, the dollar value. You know, there's just more skin in the game. You know, it's gotta you gotta you gotta be able to defraud at higher dollar values so it every it makes it worth everybody's risk. Well, Tommy, I know we can go I know I could probably talk about this for easily another hour and probably beyond. Maybe we, we consider another episode in the future. Uh, but I think we did a pretty good job today in terms of trying to pull out some of the major findings from this 2022 report, uh, understanding the methods and motivations for this occupational fraud and uh, how we can potentially detect it and the role of internal controls uh, through all of this. And I just want to say on, on a personal level, thank you so much for joining us in your your expertise and, and insight on this particular topic. Steve, it's been a pleasure. Been a pleasure working with you today and been a pleasure sharing this information with the audience. To the audience, I would ask one thing of you. And Steve, I believe, has put up on screen right now a bullet point slide. The very last bullet point shows uh, the address, the, the URL that you can use to download the uh, Association of Certified Fraud Examiners a report. Please go download that report and please read through it. I'm not saying read every letter off every page, but please go through that report and and let's really pay attention to what's happening uh, in this world of fraud these days. It, it can be it can be quite damaging. It can literally shut down a business if it if it goes un, uncontrolled. So let's make sure that we're addressing that. Again, thank you for your time, and I think Steve's got a couple of closing words. Absolutely, and I'll point out that report is made available for free. Um, and it is one of the best out there. It, it, I mean, it reads like a true crime novel, you know, I, I gotta be honest. I really like, it was a joy to read it every time. And, and I don't take any joy in knowing that organizations are, are having these frauds perpetrated. It's just frankly, very interesting, uh, material. And I think you'll enjoy it. Now, folks, that does bring us to the end of our podcast today. Again, if you're a financial professional, CPA um, or other type of financial professional subject to continuing education, well, guess what? This podcast and discussion you just heard, you can earn CPE credits, NASBA qualified credits. Head on over to cpetoday.com and use course code ACFE. You'll take a five-question quiz to earn a credit for listening to today. And if it is your first podcast, thank you, thank you, thank you for finding us and listening. Uh, you can earn a free credit uh, for this class. Just use one free podcast at checkout uh, to make that credit free. 
We'd love for you to connect with us on social media. Always interested to know what you're interested in learning about. And if you have any feedback on our uh, presentation or, or topics that you'd like us to talk about in the future, you can find us just about everywhere as CPE Today or as K2 Enterprises as well. And you can find both organizations. And if you are listening live and you want to follow this and get the latest and greatest directly to your uh, mobile device, consider subscribing wherever you happen to find content, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and others. Tommy, it was an absolute pleasure. I really hope we can do this again. Uh, Always fun to work with you and do these kind of group discussions. I always learn so many great, new, and interesting things. So... Uh, Thank you so much, and a big thank you to all of you listening, and I hope to see you back in the office the next time around soon. Thanks so much.